Hey there, it's Nathan Bernier with a quick pitch for my podcast, KUT Weekend. All the reporting on Central Texas that comes out of our Austin newsroom. Updated Friday afternoons. Check it out. It's time for a Which is the number one chocolate for drink? pizzas for the price of one. It tastes so wonderfully. That's a spicy meat. We have this high incident of diet-related disease. We have to start looking at the diet from birth. The ideal of choice versus the illusion of choice are two very different things. And I always like to make the distinction between choices and options. So glad you could join us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. And I'm Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. This week on The Secret Ingredient, we're joined by Kimberly Seals Allers. She is an award-winning journalist, author, and a nationally recognized media commentator. She consults and advocates for breastfeeding and infant health um, and transforms thoughts, communities, and ultimately cultural norms um, through her public speaking and through, uh, in particular, the new book that is coming out called The Big Letdown, How Medicine, Big Business, and Feminism Undermine Breastfeeding. Kimberly, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Kimberly, you are very welcome here, even though you're taking on feminism, um, which uh, at least one third of us quite likes. Uh, and so uh, t- Tom and I, are, uh, uh, basically, I think we're going to mansplain breastfeeding. That's um, a plan, I mean. Uh, and, then, uh, and, and feminism to everyone. Breastfeeding often requires some mansplaining. But, but, so, but why don't we start there? I mean, w- one of the, the, the really powerful parts of the book is precisely that, uh, you know, the sort of patriarchy around breastfeeding. And I wonder if, you, if maybe that's the place to jump in to start thinking about, mm-hmm. well, okay, how, how is breastfeeding this, this football that is pulled one way by patriarchs and the other way by feminists? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start because breastfeeding is one of these issues that is so complex. It's how we look at women's lives. It is a, a lens to look through um, feminism. And it's also the way we look at our society in terms of how we take care of mothers and babies um, and, and our infant health measures. So I think all of these things really come together around breastfeeding. I mean, from the feminist perspective, which I like to think that I am, um, but I'm also, you know, very clear about the ways that, you know, the movement has either supported or at times um, been really um unsupportive of breastfeeding and, and, and not with any real intention. But I think that in the quest to advocate for us to be really equal to men, we forgot about the things that make us uniquely women. And one of those very unique things is, you know, lactation and, and of course, our ability to birth um, and then really this, this issue. And so it became the this this way of looking at women or not looking at women um, as a way of being different from men, but also being uniquely women. I think that's where it became such a, you know, hotbed issue. I'd like to ask, you know, while reading your piece, I just want to say, first of all, like there were times I was just in complete tears because it was so powerful. (laughs) And especially when you're, you know, sitting on the floor in the hospital and it's just like, oh my God, I've so been there. And also when you're running after that woman with the $20, I was like, (laughs) oh my God, oh my God. Anyway, so just... Thank little, you. Little side fan note there, but um, <laughs> but uh, I want to touch upon like some of the rhetoric I think, or th- what you touch upon these words that I think are really powerful in feminism and capitalism that cause a lot of distress for women who are trying to breastfeed. One of them is choice. 
mm-hmm. freedom, um, individualism, community support, and um, care. So giving care, all of these ideas of how people are supposed to relate to those different concepts has really been influenced and affected by feminism and capitalism. And I wondered if you could just like speak to that and crack some of that rhetoric open a little bit. Right. I mean, such, you know, powerful words, such loaded words. We can start with choice, which is probably one of the most loaded words, you know, particularly as women, um, very much connected to reproductive rights, very much something that, you know, we feel, even as Americans, I mean, we feel choice is something that we have earned. This is part of our American way. This is part of liberty and, to your point, freedom to really have choice. Um, but the, you know, the, 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 the ideal of choice versus the illusion of choice are two very different things. And I always like to make the distinction between choices and options because really a choice is you having two things that are equal. And in the breastfeeding landscape, breast milk and infant formula are not equal. So that's not really a choice. It's just two options, um, one of which is not a really good one. And so a lot of times women find themselves forced to make choices that they really would rather not have to make. For instance, many women are returning to work two and three weeks after delivery. Is that really a choice? I don't know for every woman if that's really a choice or something that, you know, they have to do because of economic interests, because of there's no other option. And then they say, oh, it was my choice to return to work. And as I speak to women, if you look at all the data around the the number of women who would actually prefer to have some sort of part-time work, if we look at what now we're seeing around companies who are offering more extended maternity um, and family leave, because we know that this time matters and that women have not had the choice. They've had the illusion of the choice and the language of choice, but really not being able to make true choice. Um, another thing related to that word is, especially when it comes to breastfeeding, is the choice to feed, right? I call it the right to feed because you really have a right to feed your baby the way you want to feed your baby. It shouldn't be a choice. Whatever you want to do is your right. Um, but really, again, this idea of having no structural support, again, being expected to return to work in two to three weeks when you really haven't had time to establish any sort of real breastfeeding routine. Um, we think about all the barriers that women are facing when they dare to step outside their home and nurse their child. Is it really a choice when women are saying, I'm not going to breastfeed? Or are these choices being shaped by powerful influences that many of us are really unaware of? And so we're responding and really not choosing. And so that's, you know, a very important um, point that I, 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 I always make when I'm talking to women because, you know, we, we do use the word and we also use the word as a power tool. You know, it's my choice. So that means that when we have a uh, an issue that's so shrouded individualism, if it's my choice, you can't say anything to me about it. And it remains in the very private and personal space without us having a broader conversation of where these so-called choices fit in the scheme of infant health, um, fit in the scheme of really food systems reform, and these other much broader issues. Kimberly, um, oh, so I, I, I consider myself a feminist who is pro breastfeeding and it seems like a yeah and it seems like a lot of what you were just talking about there are real public policy implications to it Uh, Mm -hmm. for example a lot of countries have paid sick leave if you give someone a job then you're required to provide that person with uh with i'm not not sick leave but paid maternity leave 
We don't have that in this country. Um, can you talk us through what a sort of pro-breastfeeding policy regime would be like and how it's different from the current one we have now in the United States? Absolutely. And, you know, your point is one of the most pivotal and most important pieces to the puzzle is really about um, paid maternity leave, allowing mothers to um, really have that time to establish their feeding routines and bond with their children and not to feel like they have the pressure to return to work. So that is certainly um, ground zero and step one that everyone feels is important for policy change. The other would be really around policies around um, part-time work um, and really redefining even once you return to work, even if you've had eight weeks off, then now it becomes, well, what about my time then? And so we keep putting these um, elements of of mothering in compartments um, in terms instead of looking at it at a continuum as a continuum and, and, and an ongoing issue. So I may get, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks off. And then, well, I really wanted to continue to mother after that. So now I have to make the quote unquote choice to go back to work. I can't complain about those 12 weeks because that's more than anybody that I know ever had. And now I have to figure out what I'm going to do to actually mother and do the career that I've invested my time in. And so looking at how we can really create on a policy level um, more flexible schedules, what more part-time options, really rethinking our economic infrastructure to create a, an, um, a, a, an environment to look at what, you know, other forms of work. Um, the other piece in that is actually valuing the caring work. We talked about the word care being a, you know, very loaded issue. And in this country, we tend to view dependency as a as a problem. Um, your child dependent on you may be a problem, elders, problems. And this is unique to our culture that we don't value caring um, the way that other cultures do. And so really being able to look at caring, and for me, that includes as a mother, but also elder care being uh, a part of that policy where we could value that in a different way. I always found it strange that I could not be paid to take care of my children, but you know, a stranger could. I could pay a nanny, and she can get benefits and write-offs, but I can't be paid to take care of my own child. Um, it's it's really it's it's backwards. And so these are really some of the um, some of the basic policy levels that we re- changes we really need to start looking at. But then, uh, just to be a, a little provocative, Kimberly, aren't you being unfair to feminists? I mean, th- there was a wages for housework movement in feminism in the 1970, for example, Silvia Federici and a whole bunch of Italians, uh, Italian feminists and uh, in- interveners in a, in a range of debates said, look, care work is work and it needs to be paid. And wages for housework was a way of talking about that within feminism. Uh, are you talking specifically about a an, an, uh, a strain of North American feminism that that you're that you've you've come up against. Mm. So yes, I mean certainly we're you know kind of focused on the U.S. because you know when you look at the U.S. compared to other countries, you know we're really the ones who are at the low end when it comes to breastfeeding rates, and you know even at the high end when it comes to infant mortality rates. And so we have a lot to learn from other countries, but certainly here in the U.S., if you look at the many fragments of f- feminism um, versus kind of the mainstream dialogue of feminism, which has really been you know a, a push for equal pay, pr- pay, uh, and then really some important work around reproductive rights. You know, those have been um, two main themes of of American feminism and really trying to free women from this imperative to mother um, and and the imperative to have children, you know, um, and all those things are very important. But 
really not valuing, one, women who might actually want to mother, and two, the how do we really look at the things that make us uniquely women. And so... Um, you know, and these are just two. There's so many kind of waves of feminism. Um, I couldn't imagine getting to all of them, but certainly just looking at, you know, the main voices and the main push and what has been happening on a policy level, it has really been directed around, you know, two of those key objectives. You know, it's really difficult, I think, as well. I, I love this idea that you that you say you might as well call this the liberation mystique for today's generation, because I think it points to something which is really unique about feminism in the United States coming up, especially third wave feminism and neo-capitalism, because I think it's um, it's made us evaluate the value that we give to things based on the marketplace as opposed mm-hmm. to the home, actually. Um, so I was wondering, is there a way that you see that you could maybe parse um, breastfeeding within the marketplace to give it more validity? Or do you think that we just need to scrap it and reevaluate the way that we're understanding breastfeeding and motherhood in feminism? And when you say the marketplace, you mean the marketplace from a capitalist perspective. Exactly. So if Mm. you say, you know, women are being valued, but they need to lean in. So you, you bring that up, you know, and you're giving value to women based on the way that they can commodify their own bodies and gain some movement within the marketplace as a commodity. If you commodify breast milk, do you think that gives it more validity? And or do you think that it takes away from it and we need to understand it outside of the marketplace? Or is there a way to to kind of um, gain some momentum with women within this neo capitalist society, within the feminist movement? Or do you think it devalues it altogether? Mm -hmm. Such a great question. I mean, what we're seeing right now is a big commodification of breast milk. Um, We see a lot of businesses popping up uh, to um, basically, you know, kind of pasteurize and sell mother's milk to other mothers who may not be able to um, produce or have a need um, beyond what had used to be really the domain of um, hospitals and, and premature infants. Now there are several websites and, and, and businesses that are going around collecting milk. Women are being paid for their milk um, per ounce at times, to and, and, and they're being paid as producers. So that commodification, you know, makes two things happen. One, Women have the unique um, gift of producing a food. It's a food that is, you know, it cannot be duplicated. Trust me, the infant formula makers have tried. Um, And so it is a value that women can produce a food that only women can produce. It has, you know, qualities and magical wonders that have not yet been able to be fully replicated by science. And there is value in that. Um, so that's very important. On the other side, we have the value of mothering and, and, and the nurturing work that occurs with breastfeeding, but is separate from breast milk. And that separation is of concern to me because I believe that, you know, as breast milk, which is becoming quite valuable from a commodity perspective and a producer perspective, breastfeeding itself is becoming less valued. And that means that what the, the distinction between those two being that fact that a mother is attached to her baby um, is the part that's being devalued is the part that we need to be concerned about. And so we see in this country what I call a push to pump, where there's lots of accommodations if you are interested um, and, and prefer to remove the milk from your body and give it to your baby via a bottle. Many women do this. But there is less 
protections and, and, and enthusiasm and movement around you actually giving your baby the same milk through the distribution vehicle that nature provided. And so we see this is just another area where there's a huge disconnect. Um, and I feel women's, women are being separated from their, from their bodies, from, their, from the product that they produce, and from their babies in the process. Now, is that push, is that mainly based on accommodating, accommodating sort of long work hours that, you know, if a woman's going to work a 12-hour day as a lawyer in a high-powered uh, high, um, law firm or work two jobs that might take her out of the home for, for you know, 13, 14 hours because she's low income, is this sort of push to pump to accommodate these kinds of work schedules? Well, if, if you look at some, it, it could, but if you look at some of the accommodations, they mostly have been, you know, from on a corporate level to really help, you know, higher earning women who are returning to work very soon, but want to continue giving their baby the benefit of breast milk. And so recently... Um, I believe the IBM announced that they were going to be offering f free FedEx services for mothers to ship their milk, going back to my story, um, for mothers to ship their milk back to their babies when they're on business travel. Um, you know, I go around the country quite often, and everyone wants to show me their nursing room. They get very excited to, you know, to, to, show, to point me toward their, you know, their IKEA furniture and their little lamp and, and the pillow, and it's become a great thing. But, you know, that also really pushes, you know, one— Pumping as opposed to breastfeeding, those are two different things. And two, this is how we accommodate the lack of policy. So instead of me being able to stay home with my baby and breastfeed it, you know, directly, what I have is a lovely room to sit in to think about my baby, hopefully, <laughs> um, and, and then pump, use a machine that someone created to remove the product from my breast. And I'm just not sure that that's the best way forward. Yeah, you know, I... I was wondering about this exact thing because when I heard that um, pumps were going to be covered under Obamacare, I was like screaming for joy because I don't mm -hmm. know how I would have got through the first two years of my daughter's life without a pump because she was a preemie and couldn't latch on and I couldn't nurse her and I didn't know what I was going to do and I was pumping like crazy. And I don't know what I would have done without it. And so I think, I mean, I know, I hear what you say as as um, nursing is a way to bond with your child. And what we really need to value is that connection between mother and child. But in so many ways, do you also think that women should be educated and provided pumps and these alternatives just so they can keep, you know, maintain their own health? So No, pumps are critical. And I don't want to ever undermine that, particularly even if, you know, going back to low-income women, um, you know, who have alternate work schedules. Also, you know, I travel a lot and a lot of women, remember, breastfeeding is not just about your baby. It's about you. It's about how you feel about your body. It's about your sexual history. So sometimes when women, you know, based on some of their experiences, they're just not comfortable having a baby on their breast. And so for a lot of women, pumps are invaluable for so many reasons beyond the economics, right? Because just emotionally, they couldn't do it otherwise. And so, you know, the fact that pumps are there, the fact that they're covered, which is amazing, you know, I've done a lot of work helping get the word out about that. And the fact that the Affordable Care Act also allowed a federal law for you to be able to take a break at work to, to, to actually use that pump. Yeah. <laughs> so these are all very, very important um, accommodations and considerations. But I don't think that they should replace on a policy level that women really have all the other options. So that is one option that has been 
push for the pasta. But if for me, I couldn't pump. I don't know why. It just never worked. I got it. I focused. You know, I did everything I was supposed to do. And I would maybe get like three drips. It would make me cry. I felt like such an underachiever, you know. And so, I, I, I mean, it just didn't work for me. And so and for women who are not able to pump, what's, what's their recourse? And so in a, in a space where there is no way for women who perhaps need to or babies who don't take bottles and nipples will only nurse at the breast, um, what happens to them after two or three weeks? And so these are the things that we're talking about, the, I, you know, the illusion of choice versus really being able to pursue either way without barriers. And that's what we're trying to get at and get to. <laughs> yeah. One of the one thing that you bring up uh, in your book is co-located child care. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just give a couple examples of where you've seen that really work well. Um, co-located child care, yeah, uh, it is such an amazing thing. Actually, you know, at one of my previous employers, we had it in the building. It was only for emergency purposes, but I would have a lot of emergencies, it seemed. Um, so, uh, but the idea of being able to go down, you know, mothers would come down and, and nurse their babies at lunch. And, you know, as my children were older, they weren't in breastfeeding age when I was there, taking a walk with them. But the idea of separating, again, it's another step toward connecting us to our children, um, but this idea that we are separated from our children um, is is a very odd thing. I mean, in other cultures, children are everywhere. They just, they you know, they, they just are there. They're part of life. They um, are not kind of separated, and women aren't expected, particularly in early days and years after, after birth, to be, ex- you know, away from their children for extended hours. So co-located care, particularly for women who, you know, do have extended hours but could actually spend time with their child during breaks and lunch hours, it's such an amazing opportunity Um and, you know, now that there is more of an effort, again, very much, you know, often within the realm of, of a corporate perk. So we really have to get some of these things to trickle down to, you know, to, to more retail locations and, and other types of work environments. But co-located care is just um, a great opportunity for women to be able to continue their work and to continue to have their time to give nurturance and care to their child throughout their workday. Well, We've been talking about how to value that care and to to value motherhood. I mean, there are places and societies and cultures that have done that. Um, and you know, what one can think of the French Revolution representing you know the, the Republic as this breastfeeding woman, or, or I mean, let's go to Nazi Germany. Why not? Because um, motherhood there was rewarded if you had four babies you you got the Mutterkreuz um, you know the, this uh, award for, for <laughs> swelling the homeland of Aryan children so I mean societies have come up with ways of valuing um, motherhood but not necessarily mm-hmm. in the way that, that, that everyone wants to celebrate and and that I mean that, that just makes me think of something that we've uh, we we, used, we spoke about a few years ago, Kimberly, uh, around the, the sort of compulsory um, breastfeeding crowd, where um, it, 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 it almost at, at the time we were talking about it seemed to fall into the category of things white people like. Um, of, you know, you must breastfeed. And if you're not breastfeeding, you are not a good woman. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's there's a, you know, a a, a way of valuing and valorizing breastfeeding in a way that can actually be quite oppressive. And -hmm. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's such a interesting um, 
it's such an interesting perspective. I mean, you know, women don't need to feel pressured on either way. Um, but but what they really need is a level playing field so they can truly make informed decision making. And I think that's what is lacking um, for us to be able to truly choose. And, you know, the environment makes it very difficult, right? So do I have true choice Choice when I'm leaving the hospital and I'm getting a bag of formula and goodies that I didn't ask for? I don't know. Like, is that, to pose a, is that supposed to make it level for me to really to independently choose? And so I think that this whole idea of, of choice and then good mothers and bad mothers being defined by breastfeeding is a very dangerous territory. Um, you know, throughout time, women have been, uh, you know, judged by various different things. One of the things that I do believe um, is that um, some of what we hear about good versus bad mothers and mommy wars, that it's really just a marketing tool. I mean, I think overall mothers are very supportive of other mothers. Um, but I think that there that there is a commercial interest in this dialogue, um, good mothers versus bad mothers, and doing that versus doing something else that people get caught up into. And so we really have to be astute to understand who's feeding us these messages, Um and 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 who actually benefits from creating a so-called war around mothers? Um, it's not mothers. And so, uh, usually, when someone is benefiting, it's usually not it's usually not the people who are being you know used as pawns in the process. Mm. But there, there there's a there's a way of of of, uh, of commercial interest kind of overriding that. Whether that means whatever stroller you use, whether that means what schools you go to, whether that means what language, how many languages your child speaks, there is this there is this thing that we have around parenting in general. And I don't want to put all of that on breastfeeding because there are many ways that mothers are judged as good or bad mothers. Um, Recently, we had a uh, robust conversation in this country about the mother, I believe, in Maryland or in the D.C. area who let her children walk home from school. I don't know if you remember the sure. the, the fury that erupted over that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this idea of what is a good parent, not just a mother or a bad parent, has, has many, many um, um, kind of variations, and I don't like to see breastfeeding kind of hung on the on the on the on the pin as the only thing that's used to define women because it's not. Um, and I think that that is it is dangerous language. What we want, what I want, is really for um, mothers, all women, to have a uh, in, informed decision making, true choice, true choice around their their options. And so that's what. I think all of this comes from, and everything else is, is is a lot of noise that needs to be ignored. One question I have is, um, you know, in the incredibly vivid op- opening section of your book, and everyone should read this book because it is beautifully written, um, you've got this really vivid section talking about, you know, early on, I think it's with your first child and having trouble um, getting the breastfeeding to work, you know, getting the mechanics of it to work with the child, and rushing to the hospital for help and ending up on the floor and um and just this real crisis around mechanically making breastfeeding work and i know that there's in the last 15 years this industry around lactation consultation and none of this is stuff that i'd heard i been hearing about until you know five or six years ago so is there something happening with uh, lactation that is making it more difficult, or is this just an issue that we're talking about more, and it's always sort of been um, trouble to, to 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 make it go right? 
Mm, such a great question. I mean, I think that we're learning a bit more about how lactation works. And so even though, you know, I'm a woman and, you know, technically after a certain series of events happen related to birth, my, my breast should begin to lactate. But what we are also learning is that it has, you know, there's a biological response and then there's the cycles the psychological response and that my body is not going to lactate properly or at all if I'm stressed, right? If, you know, if my other hormones are kind of in overdrive. And so we've come to recognize that it's not really about the biological part that women need the help with. Um, It's often the other issues, the stressors that we bring upon themselves that are actually suppressing it. So breastfeeding becomes a self-limiting activity where that stress becomes the thing that actually prevents me from lactating. And now the fear that I had about not having enough milk is actually becoming true. And it's, you know, amazing and scary at the same time. Um, And so in even my own journey with breastfeeding and my fears and, you know, like I said, me wondering, why am I doing this? Because clearly I was caught up in in the good mother. This is what good mothers do as well. Um, And that's what, you know, led me down the road that I had to get this right. Um, And so what we're learning about how that those types of responses and those social stressors actually impede breastfeeding and the natural process of lactation is really interesting. And so now lactation consultants, these are things that are really important. There's there's less about the mechanics, you know. Mechanics are important because people assume that it's natural. So if it's natural, everybody knows how to do it. I'm like, well, sex is natural too. And if all of you can tell me that the first time you did it, you had, it was great and amazing, then Good luck to God bless you. But most of us had to try a few times. You need to get that rhythm right. And, you know, it it might take a few tries, but I bet you none of us gave up after the first time saying that was not what I thought it was. Never mind. (laughs) We always come back for more, right? We always. You keep trying. You keep trying. So, you know, so in the same way with breastfeeding, you know, there, there is a natural rhythm involved. And, you know, a mother's learning her child's rhythm and a child is learning the mother's rhythm. And there are some mechanics. So are some technical aspects, but mostly once we accept that, you know, this is normal, um, it's it, it becomes, you know, more of a, oh, okay. Um, the other thing that I think is really important, I didn't get to share this with you all, is really the role of the media. I think one of the most dangerous things that have happened, um, you know, with the media and also really the breastfeeding movement itself is these, you know, these simplistic images, right? I call it like the, you know, the, the meadow scenes where women are running through meadows, breastfeeding, and, <laughs> and, and there's nothing but flowers around, and these people, their hair is done, and I don't <laughs> understand this at all. Um, and so we have put out, you know, and I'm, I'll say the breastfeeding movement has put out a lot of unrealistic images that really force women, that cause women to feel that something was wrong with them. Because if I see you know, the media image that breastfeeding means means running through fields of lilies and I'm sitting here like crying and half naked on a hospital floor, then clearly something is wrong with me. And so these images that were likely used to try to invite women in were actually more detrimental because women were looking at that thinking, well, that's not the experience that I'm having, so I'm going to stop because something's must be wrong with me. And so what I love about social media um, now is that women are be able to share a more authentic experience about what breastfeeding is. And I think that has been an amazing opportunity for people to get the support that they need that doesn't require a lactation consultant. It just required you understanding that you being there and perhaps not having showered 
and and everything else is quite okay. Um, that's what women need as much as they may need any technical support through, through the lactation consultant. So I think it's a combination of a greater awareness of how the social elements impact the actual biological process. Um, and also, you know, lactation consultants, the field has been growing and, you know, hospitals are now having them. There's a lot of government effort, so there is more help available. So those two things have been working in tandem. Yeah. I just want to dive in real quick and say, and, and just ask, um, you mentioned in that section that you had a, you know, $100 an hour lactation consultant. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if um, if that particular service is getting more affordable and uh, more available to different classes of, of people. Very important question. Um, it's very frightening. I mean, one of the things, maybe I'll think about this, if, if we could actually geomap what a lactation cost, because in places such as, you know, downtown Brooklyn and, and in the city was extremely expensive, you know, it becomes really unreachable. One of the things that have been great, um, particularly on the low-income side, that WIC um, has federal money to create peer counselors, and I've traveled and seen some really great programs where they're using actual women and training them to be of support to other women. And so what we also need, and this is an important question as we think about that $100 lactation consultant, there are many layers of certification. So you're going to pay that kind of money for what they make, for what they call an IBCLC, right, the International Board Certified Lactation Consultant. But not everybody really needs that level. And so what you know, what we, we need the industry to do is to open up to create other levels. So there is like a lactation consultant. There's a LC. There are CLCs. And so we can understand that sometimes you may need that gold standard of an IBCLC who is pretty much has been, you know, to medical school. and But sometimes you just need another mom who's trained on some of the basics of mechanics and that we can make those levels of um, of support more available and then move people up as needed. And I think that's what has been the, you know, the good strategy and, and, and the answer is how do we create other levels of support so that mothers can, who may not, who may not need that high level uh, lactation certification can be equally benefited by, by another professional. Um, and then we need to integrate lactation support other places. There's no reason why your pediatrician shouldn't either be a lactation consultant or have one on staff. He, you know, they are responsible for infant health. But um, somehow, and I feel, going back to patriarchy, it's become an issue where nobody wants to be responsible for our breasts, right? So the OBGYN says, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm the uterus guy. I'm done. You know, I've birthed a baby. I, you know, I'm done here. The pediatrician says, well, I'm here for the baby. The breasts belong to the woman. So they kick us back to the OBGYN. And nobody wants to be responsible for the breasts except the lactation consultant, um, at least in lactation. Of course, when you, if you, you know, become ill, you will be assigned to a surgeon. I went to a women's health center and I was so excited because they had a big, uh, I forgot what city I was in, but when I go to a women's, a breast health place, I'm like, where's the breastfeeding thing? It was really all about cancer. This this whole conversation about breasts is only around disease. I'm like, what about their actual working function? Yeah. They thought I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love I love the way uh, in your book you you talk about Alice, this woman who helped you when you were at mm-hmm. the hospital, and I think that is really touching, and it speaks to something that shows that breastfeeding is really kind of like this canary in the coal mine when it comes to these big issues. Because when you have this idea of um, 
couching breastfeeding as a choice, it also comes with great responsibility. So when you make a choice, you take on the responsibility if you're going to breastfeed that if that's your choice, all right, you're in it, you're on your own, you know, and in or you could have this other uh, formula, which is scientifically developed, and the responsibility for your child's health care is then out of you, you kind of secede that to the scientific community in a way. Um, and and I think that when when you touched upon how important it was just to have her there caring about you as an individual, it it shows us that we can't learn all of these things that we need to learn by the scientific community and by the market. We have to interact with people, and we have to, in a way, um, in a way, we've succeeded our way into this individualism, which is really harmful to the health of us as a community. And um, But I was wondering if you could talk about just how important it is to have women's groups, to have women supporting women in nursing and in these issues, and just to talk about it with, you know, people in your community and intergenerationally as well. It's so important. And thank you for sharing that insight. You know, when I was thinking about her, I that was a perspective I hadn't thought about. She was just my savior that day. And, you know, her role to help me remain calm and, and, and stay with me was just something I never forgot. Um, so I appreciate that perspective and feedback. Um, I think that when we um, look at the, you know, kind of the, the, the issue of responsibility and, and who's responsible for whom, you know, a lot of it for women has become, I don't, it's, it's, it's not in a good place. You know, I can't even think of the, you know, the complicated word for it. But I think that women supporting women need some work in, in lots of different areas. So many times when women are um, being asked to leave places, I mean, remember the example of Vic, a woman who was breastfeeding at Victoria's Secrets, right? Surrounded by breasts. <laughs> but, but she was she was told by a female employee that she had to leave. And of all, of all the places you might think that, you know, that you could breastfeed without being asked to leave, you would think Victoria's Secret would be a, a, um, among them. But of course, the idea that you could be around things that are made to look your breast pretty is one thing, but you're not meant to use it for feeding. Remember, that's the message that we give women. And so we see that a lot of times when women are being asked to leave, it's other women who are, you know, often the ones who are, you know, disgusted, upset. And I think this is really a, an important conversation that women are not having. Here's my theory. Because the breast has been over-sexualized, right, and so we see it as a, really as a sexual tool or a sexual organ, um, then if I'm exposing that, even to feed my baby, I am now making a sexual, quote-unquote, advance, and your man may see it, right? And so now women are upset about this, not because they have any particular problem with breastfeeding, per se, but the idea that you are displaying a part of your body that is, is deemed to be sexual becomes an issue. And so women have to really, uh, you know, I feel, reclaim our breasts to get it back from the men, Sorry, guys. I know you enjoy them, and we appreciate that, but they have other functions. Um, and also back from, you know, the marketing interests so that we could actually really support each other around not just, you know, breastfeeding, but other areas where our bodies have just been over-sexualized. Um, I got real excited about the 
free the nipple campaign and you know these you know younger uh, feminists really taking on this issue around um, you know hypocrisy of women's bodies these are areas where women really need to be supporting each other more by us having some concrete conversations about um, you know the messages we receive who sends them to us and how we're responding to them because I think we're, we're, we're missing that right now and I would like to see more true support and just uh, briefly also, if you could touch upon these intergenerational relationships that we have to breastfeeding, because I feel like there are some huge gaps between the the ways that women learn how to be pregnant, have children, and nurse, and feminism. Because mm-hmm. um, there's, in a, in a way, because we learn how to nurture from our our mothers, but we learn feminism from our professors. Mm. So such a good point. Yeah, so true. And I think that, you know, going back to economics, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a business journalist at heart. But if we look at what has happened to women in terms of how many women are still living within a reasonable you know, distance of their mother. You know, it's just fewer and fewer. And because of financial demands and where people have to move for work, and if it's not your work, maybe it's your partner's work, people are no longer as connected physically and, you know, physically in the same space as their mothers who may have come around and, you know, was was there for everything and could have shared some knowledge that may not have felt, you know, monumental, but really was in a small and nuanced way. And so women themselves are, are kind of distant from their traditional support circles from that traditional knowledge. And so um, if we look at how many, you know, kind of the, the moving patterns of, of modern families, it's very different from the way things used to be. So women are, one, disconnected. Two, there are many generations that um, were disconnected from breastfeeding in particular because of the year that they were, you know, born and the birth practices. I was born in the early 70s. And I don't know. My mother was even awake when I was born. <laughs> it just wasn't the thing to do. And so, of course, that practice was not exactly supportive of breastfeeding. And so if we look at how much information um, through the medical practice and the, whatever the medical practice was at that time has been lost from women, not just around birth. Now, how can she tell me about birth when she wasn't even awake for it? You know, it, I mean, it's 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 really a, a, a loss around information for women around certain things that due to medical practices just didn't happen. So that's really uh, been a big one of the causes. You know, we look at infant formula marketing. You know, during the 70s, it was heavily marketed as a substance for sophisticates, right? And if you had money, it was the thing to do. Um, and as much as I put a lot of effort into nursing, I had very well-meaning, successful older women in my family who I love and respect and who supported me through, you know, school and graduate school who told me that breastfeeding is for poor people. And I was like, what? So it was very, you know, these ideas about, you know, and where did that come from? Did that come from them being around when formula marketing was saying it's a substance for sophisticates and who doesn't want to be sophisticated? So again, really understanding how these um, one, medical practices, two, marketing practices and commercial interests have caused this intergenerational disconnect, have caused these 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 ways that we used to learn to be broken um, and often to, to not even be repaired. So this is very dangerous when we look at, you know, what's so different. So a lot of times when we look at what's different, 
we may think of how, you know, pregnancy is sexy now and people don't wear moo-moos and all those kinds of things. But we also have to understand what is lost um, as we are more, you know, not physically close to our parents um, and our mothers and also that we are looking at how, you know, we're seeing how these practices that happen in hospitals have affected what we know and what we are able to learn from them. Now, this conversation is making me think of an analogy with cooking, because cooking is something that was was passed on by generations mm-hmm. for a long time. And of course, um, the the male gender in a lot of cult- cultures never really got it passed on, but um, it, it was passed on in, most, in a, many classes by generations. And then we had this rupture and this, you know, kind of the same time period, the 60s and 70s, where cooking wasn't cool and convenience foods were sort of the high class option. And now we're realizing how much we lost when we trashed cooking. And there's, so there's this big effort. It's very difficult to sort of teach people who are a generation or two removed from any kind of knowledge of cooking how to cook. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm wondering what you think of that analogy. And also, you know, how do you reignite this kind of uh, culture around breastfeeding now that it's been ruptured? That's such a great analogy, and it's so on point. Um, and even I'll take it one step further because you will find among modern women that cooking was like something that was beneath you, right? Now if you say to modern women, like, oh, I don't make dinner, I make reservations, that was like a you know mantra of honor to be like, listen, I'm a modern woman, I don't cook. So it was actually something to be proud of um, in some, some female circles. And in a similar way that you know cooking has been deemed by some women to be something that you know we're too smart to advance to 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 career oriented to do um, that is very similar to breastfeeding and that the idea of you being you know pretty much at the there at the whim of a baby was something that we were that was beneath us that was something that a modern woman would not do it was you know being tethered to a child who would you know agree to such a thing it sounds like taking us a step back but what we're seeing now in both areas right we see the societal costs we see what is happening when a generation of people are disconnected one from where their food come from how to prepare it and even what it looks like for crying out loud that we're paying a price for that when we look at our childhood obesity rates when we look at you know the the high rates of hypertension in our country diabetes oh my goodness across the board so we know that there's been a, a societal cost to this disconnect, even around our food, and to your analogy, cooking. It's very, very similarly on the um, breastfeeding side. We're looking at the um, infant health numbers. We're seeing this, um, these, these, these increases in type two diabetes and 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 childhood obesity, which much research has linked to this decreased rate in breastfeeding. Um, and so we, so we know that we are paying a price for that. We know that we are paying a price for that, and I think that that's what it's going to take for us to, one, recognize that none of these things and so-called conveniences or this enlightened way comes without a cost, and we have to ask ourselves if we're willing to pay that. Um, And then, two, really pulling the wool back to say, well, you know, when we stopped cooking, who really benefited, right? Who benefited when we were out there buying all these prepared meals and, you know, like what's the follow the money trail and see how someone really benefited from us losing that that cultural knowledge, that that way that we did things. And it's very similar to breastfeeding. You know, there is a huge um, benefit when we are not breastfeeding, when we use a commercially produced replacement product. Um, And so that is an important consideration. I'm hoping that that will spark a momentum for us to say, hey. 
mm, I'm not interested in that anymore. And I think the same way that we're learning about our food system in general and we're saying we want to know what's in our food and we don't want everything to come from, you know, a, a Petri dish, that we're going to start asking the same questions of what we feed our babies. Now, I would argue we should have asked that question first, but I'm willing to be in the conversation wherever. One thing I should hasten to, to add is that they are different in, in the sense that um, that men can step up and start cooking too and take some of that, you know, take uh, their share of the burden uh, of cooking and breastfeeding is a, a little different on that front. Yes, that's very true. But that men can cook true. for women who are breastfeeding. That's true. Which is huge. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and men can do some of the other things that need to be done for a baby. I mean, a breastfed baby still needs to have a diaper change and baths and all those other things. So men can step up to do some of the other caring work um, in, in the total breastfeeding picture. Um, I'm wondering if we can also just bring in uh, – you, you, you mentioned let – me, let me start that again. Hang on. Um, you mentioned that uh, type 2 diabetes is something that's that's epidemic in the United States, but that's an epidemic that is not born equally. Uh, one in three children in the U.S. Uh, born in the year 2000 will develop type 2 diabetes, but one in two children of people of color uh, will develop type 2 diabetes. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what what's different for women of color in the debates around breastfeeding and what's at stake in particular for women of color? Hmm. Such a great question. What's different for women of color? I don't even know where to start. I'm going to start with the historic, a little historical context because I think that's important. When we look at the, you know, the history of black women and breastfeeding in this country, we know that during slavery, black women were forced to stop breastfeeding their own children to breastfeed the children of their white slave owners. We know that black women were actually commodified based on their ability to breed and feed, and they were bought and sold. Um, you know, often on their ability to bear children and feed them. And so there's certainly a lot of historical trauma related to breastfeeding in black women. It is not a simplistic conversation because of this history. Um, also thinking about, as I mentioned before, how breastfeeding is also about your body, right? So we know that if anyone's... Um, Black women's bodies have been, you know, hypersexualized, demonized, and, 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 and made wrong in many ways over history. And so these factors come into play um, for breastfeeding for, for women of color, particularly African-American women, um, certainly Native American women. The historical trauma there, what, you know, what was experienced in terms of the, the policies of the government toward Native American women. There's lots of historical trauma, particularly as it relates to African-American and Native American women in this country, that um, has not been addressed. And so we see that people are coming to the breastfeeding, let's say, conversation or even the question um, with very different histories, with a lot of cultural baggage, with stories. I mean, I speak to older women and they will still refer to breastfeeding as that slavery stuff. You know, they there's still a negative association that breastfeeding was either, A, something that black women were forced to do or something that we did for ourselves um, and not for others. And so it leaves often leaves a, a, um, a negative taste in the mouth. And the thing that, why that's so important is because among African-American women in particular, there's such a matriarchal culture where, you know, I did a lot of work in the South and whatever Big Mama says that that's what goes, you know. And so we understand that while we are specifically talking to a, you know, a younger woman, she is greatly influenced by generations of older women who um, are, are, are key in her decision making. And so these ideas are being passed on culturally and we see that all the time. 
And so just coming to that, what am I going to do, is a, um, is a whole different experience around women of color. And then much like the food world, we know that um, for years that we kind of took this individualistic approach, right? We went around and we said, eat well and exercise, eat well and exercise, which sounded good. But then we actually realized that some people cannot easily access a banana and they don't have a safe place to exercise. And so we realized that it was great messaging, but disconnected from the context of people's actual lives. So now we understand the concept of food deserts and things like that. And so in my work, I've been quick to note that there's a very similar dynamic with breastfeeding. If I look at where there are robust La Leche leagues and lactation consultants certified, even if they are charging $100 an hour or not, if I look, if I map those out, there are pockets of lack. There are very clear lines between um, re- low-income communities and income and communities that do not have the resources and support to breastfeed successfully. And so there's that at play. There are systemic problems in the breastfeeding support structure that has missed certain low-income communities, and I think that's why there's been great pressure on WIC to step up to do more of their part. But that has been relatively new in comparison to the time where these communities receive no support. Similarly, we see a great influx of, what do we see in those areas? Fast food, cheap food options. It's the same thing with peddling infant formula, high levels of infant formula marketing and low-income communities. Also, even though WIC um, may be now uh, creating breastfeeding supportive programs, they are still the largest purchaser of infant formula in this country. And so the perception that a government entity is giving you something creates a, you know, a, a kind of seal of approval. Um, when WIC is actively dispensing formula um, in in low-income communities. And so these are the barriers that many low-income women um, are facing. Um, In terms of when we look at diet-related disease in general, we have to look at what's in the formula. I mean, there are in this country, the formula companies don't even have to um, report how much sugar is in it. And we also know that one of the most dangerous sugars, sucrose, which is illegal in most European countries because of its link to childhood obesity, are not illegal in this country for use of infant formula. So if we're looking at why, you know, we have this high incident of diet-related disease, we have to start looking at the diet from birth. And that includes knowing more about what's in the infant formula um, and understanding how that is leading to these higher epidemics. Kimberly Seals Allers is the author of The Big Letdown, How Medicine, Big Business, and Feminism Undermine Breastfeeding. Kimberly, thank you so much. Thank Kimberly, you, Kimberly. Thank no you. problem. Amazing. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. bye-bye. Next time on The Secret Ingredient, we'll talk with Sven Beckert about his book, Empire of Cotton, A Global History. Also, make sure you never miss an episode. Subscribe to The Secret Ingredient in iTunes or on SoundCloud and leave us a review while you're there. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. The Secret Ingredient is engineered by David Alvarez and produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. As our community grapples with developing public health concerns... The team of reporters at KUT are gathering the facts and bringing you the answers to your most pressing questions. Keep this coverage strong with your gift of support today at KUT.org. 
and thank you.